Hey there, welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast. Appreciate you being here today. Today, Dean and I discuss a great topic, very popular among female athletes. We interview Stacey Sims and talk everything female related. Well, maybe not everything, but first off, let me introduce Dr. Stacey Sims. She is an applied researcher, innovator, author, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. Currently, Stacey is the director of the Female Athlete Performance and Health Research Program at Auckland's University of Technology, where she continues to push the dogma for research on female athletes across the lifespan and is a regularly featured speaker at professional and academic conferences, including those hosted by the IOC, the USOC, and High Performance Sport New Zealand. Dean and I have a great sit down with Dr. Sims today, cover a couple of different things, such as her early stories of her pioneering this type of work specifically. She's going to highlight the sex differences from birth through puberty to post-menopause, and discuss issues with research and generalizing findings to women, how estrogen and progesterone fluctuations in perimenopause affect women athletes, the differences between oral contraceptives and IUDs as it relates to nutrition and training programming, what female athletes in perimenopause need to know about long, slow distance, resistance training, and plyometric training, the use of adaptogens to to promote sleep quality, issues with the ketogenic diet for female athletes. And lastly, Dr. Sims' top three recommendations for the peri and postmenopausal female athlete. Super excited that you're here. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. I'm good. It's good to see both of you. I feel like I'm going to sit down for a coffee chat with two of my good friends. I'm excited. Yes. Yeah, well, same here. We, we wish you were you were back in Colorado, but soon, soon. Soon. Yeah. Soon. Stacy, I wanted to do a little time warp flashback. 2012, you were in Colorado Springs at a summit. It was the USA Cycling Coaching Summit. And I was not there, <laughs> but I heard about this through the grapevine that Dr. Stacy Sims had talked to this group of cycling coaches about sex differences with regard to training, recovery, energy metabolism, thermoregulation. You were talking about uh, oral contraceptives and the menstrual cycle. And I don't know that you would remember her, but my friend, um, coach Jill, who's a cycling coach from California, she shortly thereafter said, Dina, you have to check out this researcher, Dr. Stacy Sims. She's talking about things that no one is talking about. And I, from that point, this is how I learned about you in 2012. From that point, I have had my mind blown several times. Like, what are you talking about? These are not things that were ever taught in my you know, in my degree program. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't learn about these things in sports nutrition. This of course was eons ago, but I just wondered if you remember that timeframe and gosh, to be a fly on the wall in the room in 2012, almost 10 years ago, what was that like for you? Um, Well, to put it in perspective, I had my daughter in June of that year. 
And oh, so wow. it's like mm -hmm. one of the first trips out. First, I think was first trip was Interbike, and then it was mm -hmm. the Cycling Summit. Oh. Um, so I was a little bit nervous to present it, but I was like, you know what? I've been talking about this stuff for forever, I feel like. And I was right in the mix of it with um, the work I was doing at Stanford and just really wanted to start translating it into um, the coaching environment. Like after racing for so many years and seeing people struggle and then implementing some change with them and seeing them progress, it's like more people need to know about it. So um, yeah, I was nervous to present it, but Every since then, I feel like that talk really spurred a lot of coaches and other people to start looking at their athletes differently. Because um, even now, I'll get athletes who were there as athletes who are now coaches. Like, mm -hmm. I remember you saying this one thing, and I implemented it when I was racing, and I'm implementing it with my athletes, and it's just really, it's really good. So. So, yeah. Stacy, you've been a, literally a pioneer in this topic for almost a decade, if if not more. Like you said, you you just started presenting it almost ten years ago, right? You've been doing it a lot longer. I'm curious, what type of reception did you get in those first few presentations, professional presentations, coaching presentations, versus now what you're getting when you present? Are they different? No, <laughs> interesting enough, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I feel like whenever I give a talk they they evolve just as science evolves but it's always like speaking in a room full of people who've always looked at things through the male lens and that's all we've ever learned right and so mm -hmm. when you start opening up a lot of the women are like oh my gosh yeah i i completely understand this and then the guys in the room are like why why did we not learn this mm -hmm. i do remember giving a talk a couple of years ago up in auckland for a sport injury prevention program and i always started it as like okay um how many people the word can say the word period, right? And how many people have a, a daughter or a sister or a mother? They all have periods. So kind of that typical icebreaker thing. And then there was one person in the front row who never raised his hand. <laughs> so oh. I was like, wait a second, you're one of the top researchers in this oh. particular field of sport injury prevention. And you've never, never even thought about female versus male. And this is just two oh. years ago. Wow. Um, but then he came up to me afterwards. He's like, I've never thought about it. I'm going to have to start thinking about it now. So I was like, okay, good. Still, however many years later, always <laughs> someone in the room that has been prolific in research or prolific in teaching, and it hasn't even entered their brain that women and men are different and should be addressed differently. Never too late, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Turn on the light bulbs. Wow. Wow. What a journey. It's been such a hoot. I can't wait to just keep hearing and reading about the research that you're doing. Um, but we were excited to have you on, Stacey, to focus on our discussion on perimenopause, postmenopause, uh, athlete nutrition, training recovery. Um, before we get to that huge area to talk about, I wondered if you could share some of the sex differences that we should know before we get to that age group. So even from birth through puberty and that time up leading up to perimenopause, could you highlight some of those key differences? Yeah, the quick elevator pitch, <laughs> which probably won't be so quick. Um, so we know that there are inherent sex differences from birth. I mean, when I talk about sex differences, I'm talking about biological XX versus XY. Because uh, as all of us know, um, gender is more of a social construct. So when we talk about sex differences, from birth, there are sex differences in metabolism. 
there's more um, protein density for fatty acid metabolism in the mitochondria of women. We know that iron metabolism is different in women. We know that carbohydrate uptake and utilization is different in women. And this is outside of any kind of hormonal influence. This is just pure sex symptoms. Then we get to puberty and we have the epigenetic exposure of testosterone in men. And we see this as you know the increase in lean mass, increase in uh, fast switch fiber action, greater hemoglobin content, um, greater uh, capacity to do aerobic and anaerobic work. And there are different fueling mechanics behind that. Recovery metrics, they're different because we have differences in, in blood pressure post-exercise. We have differences in growth hormone responses post-exercises. And then when we look at women, we have the epigenetic exposure of estrogen progesterone, and this changes a whole cadre of things because almost every system in the body is affected by estrogen progesterone. And we have things like autonomic nervous system control that's changed with when you have progesterone that comes up. So it changes heart rate variability. So when we see across the menstrual cycle or all contraceptive pill, we have differences in, in the patterning of HRV as compared to men. We have differences in fatty acid metabolism where we see an uptick in fatty acid metabolism after ovulation. Why is that? Because estrogen inhibits glycogen being broken down. Progesterone shuttles carbohydrate away from the liver and the muscle because its job is to break down things to provide building blocks for the endometrial lining. So we see these shifts. And then as we get into perimenopause and we're having changes in these ratios of hormones, we start to see significant physiological changes. We start seeing changes in body composition. We start seeing changes in the ability to build lean mass, changes in sleep, changes in mood, changes in, in um, bone density, um, cognition, reaction time. Everything's affected because the way these hormones are changing, the ratios are changing before they flatline. And we get to postmenopause, that's a new biological state where the hormones are lower than when they were, um, you know, during the low hormone phase of the menstrual cycle. So they're really, really flatlined. There's a little bit of an estrogen that's produced. Um, it's called estrone in postmenopausal women. It's very much uh, a weaker estrogen, but it can also cause some negative effects. So as women are like, oh, I still have a little bit of estrogen, it's not the same thing as estradiol, which is our dominant estrogen in our, our reproductive years. So when we look at things like guidelines that are out there about sport nutrition guidelines, exercise guidelines, and they're, the studies that have gone into writing these guidelines are predominantly from male data, I find it really kind of ironic that the one thing that people say why we can't include women for the most part is the menstrual cycle because it perturbs the study, it might cause some variation, might not be adequate results, but then they don't include women and then generalize it all to women, even mm -hmm. though they've just said they can't because of the menstrual cycle, but then the generalization doesn't take anything into account. Right. So it's a bit frustrating when you know all of these different changes happen. And the other real critical thing to point out is the aging data as well. So men age in a linear fashion, but women don't because we have this whole aspect of estrogen ratios, estrogen progesterone ratios changing in the perimenopausal state where that's a significant impact on how our bodies age because we go from having hormones that work with us 
help our physiology, help us adapt, help us be stress um, resilient to change of ratios to complete downward spiral flatline. And then we have all of these changes, increase in systemic inflammation, we have increased cortisol, we have changes in um, adipose tissue having more visceral adipose tissue, uh, which again causes inflammation and different stress responses. All of those are what we see in a longer period of time over aging in men, but it's a very short period of time for women. And even the aging research is, I was just doing a review yesterday and some of the early aging studies they enrolled something like 13,000 men in a coronary artery study looking at exercise and dietary interventions, but not one woman. But then all the guidelines on exercise and nutrition for aging are generalized out. <laughs> it's like, wait, yeah. hold on a second. So that was my, um, you know, my elevator pitch, which was long. <laughs> is that changing in the research field, Stacey? Or is that very, very slow right now still to adopt, be adopted? Uh, it's... It's interesting because there are some fields that have really taken it up and are really like, okay, we have to look specifically. The one positive about the pandemic and, and COVID is that it's made the entire medical community sit up and go, wait a second, there are sex differences in drug and, and disease uptake because women are faring better. They're faring better with the vaccine. They're faring better right. with um, getting out of the hospital and surviving COVID. Long COVID is a hit or miss, yeah, but it mm. tends to be less in women. And so that has made the medical community stand up and be like, hey, wait a second, we should have listened to NIH from mm. 2016 who said we need to be doing studies on male and female cells as well as men and women. Um, so that's one thing. But like with regards to sport nutrition and sport science, really slow because you'll have these new methodologies that have come out saying this is how you study women but then you'll have loud voices within the community they're saying well there's no differences why do we have to do that like here's another mm -hmm. study that shows no differences it's like well no you're looking at one point in time of performance you're not looking at the chronic adaptation you're not looking at the chronic exposure so it's still a fight yeah Stacy, when you were talking about um, the linear fashion or the non-linear fashion uh, with regard to women and aging, I was just wondering for those of us who are, let's say, in the 45 and older, 40 and older female athlete category, um, yes, uh, do we, is it important to separate at all the uh, impact of aging from the hormonal change or does that matter really so long as we're educating ourselves on the changes that occur and employing the strategies that we need to? I think we need to look at it a little bit as there's this really acute period of time of rapid aging and then that's perimenopause and then once you hit menopause that's where we start looking at aging as aging factors. So when we look at perimenopause, I mean, it's really endemic. You have so many athletes. I'm sure both of you have early 40-year-old women coming saying, I don't understand what's going on. Like, mm -hmm. I'm doing training. I'm, I think I'm eating well, but I'm putting on body fat. I'm getting slower. I'm tired. I don't have motivation. And it's because what they're doing isn't working as you have these changeovers and ratios of hormones. So when we start looking at what do these hormones actually do? that we need to change the stress in the way that we're eating and complementing the stress in order to keep progressing. So that should be the focus in the perimenopausal aspect. 
then after that one point in time of menopause, we enter postmenopause. This is where we start adding in more of the aspect of what's happening in that linear aging fashion. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes total sense. Uh, you've been so great to to help a lot of us feel like, oh, it's not doom and gloom with a number, like covering the number of areas within the body from a performance perspective, health perspective, brain function, all of these areas um, so that we can, you know, prepare ourselves in advance or if we're already in the middle of this change or even beyond, just things that we can um, modify. But I love how you provide that empowerment to teach us like what's going on with the gut, what's going on with changes in lean muscle and relate it to, you know, estrogen progesterone ratios and the change. Um, Could you go over a few? Well, I know there's more than a few, but could you go over a few more of those aspects in detail for us? Yeah. For sure, because I'm a physiologist, so I like all those little cellular things. I'm like, well, I'll I'll uptake all the little science bits and then I'll translate it to other people and then they can (laughs) action it. Um, I'll start with estrogen because we know that that's typically the female hormone and we talk about it as estradiol or E2. And when we look at what are the effects of estrogen, we know that it's anabolic in isolation. So around the time of ovulation, when estrogen comes up, this is when we can hit things really hard and recover really well because there's a stimulus for muscle reparation. Um, We also don't have the antagonist of progesterone. So our metabolism, although we have this short, sharp blip of a changeover of fatty acid, because it's so short and sharp, we still are able to access carbohydrate in that estrogen um, uptake. The other thing that estrogen does is it crosses the blood brain barrier and it hypersensitizes serotonin. And when we think about serotonin, we're like, oh wait, we love serotonin. It's like dopamine, it helps us relax. But when it's hypersensitized and then estrogen drops so you lose that hyper um, sensitivity, we have a downward spiral of the mood. This is why women feel anxious or depressed after ovulation and right before the period starts. And we can counter that as well because we know that um, leucine and tryptophan use the same transport mechanism into the brain. So for women having more protein available, especially in the mid to later part of the menstrual cycle or on an oral contraceptive pill, when you have steady state, high levels of estradiol, then with that greater amount of protein and greater amount of amino acids circulating, we have more leucine that can block tryptophan from getting into the brain, which then alleviates those mood changes. So then when we talk about progesterone, what does progesterone do? Progesterone is a very catabolic hormone. So it's produced after the egg drops and the follicle starts to degrade. And as the follicle degrades, that actually produces progesterone. So progesterone, as it comes up, its main goal, like I said earlier, is to provide building blocks for the endometrial lining, because that's the whole goal, is to build a really cushy, nutrient-dense lining for an implantation of an egg. So it, again, shuttles carbohydrate away from the liver and muscles. So women can't store that much glycogen because progesterone is not allowing it because progesterone takes that and puts it into the endometrial lining and it's very glycogen rich. We also see progesterone breaking down 
um, lean mass to provide more amino acids, because again, amino acids are needed for building tissue. And it also um, causes a little bit of insulin resistance. So there's a small amount of changes in insulin sensitivity across the menstrual cycle, because progesterone is like, wait a second, I don't want that glucose to go into the cells. I want it to be in circulation so I can pull it into the endometrial lining. So this is another reason why in that later part of the menstrual cycle, women are kind of feeling lots of blood sugar fluctuations. They might not be able to hit intensities very well. And this is also the time where women rely more on blood glucose for activity and less on storage carbohydrate. So when we look about what the changes are just with these two hormones, and we see how much this fluctuates across a woman's lifespan, then we really have to take the eye of what are our recommendations and why are we recommending this blanket amount of carbohydrate or this blanket amount of protein when there are so many nuances and changes within the menstrual cycle. And if we're not looking at a natural menstrual cycle and then we look at oral contraception or the oral contraceptive pill driven cycle, this changes things even more because you have now not your own natural hormones being produced, but synthetic ones that come into play that are much higher than your natural hormones and there's a steady state profile. So not only do we have changes in um, carbohydrate metabolism and protein metabolism, we now are also looking at a higher amount of oxidation, a higher amount of inflammation that are due to the perturbations or the blips of these hormones that build up over the course of three weeks and then drop from that withdrawal phase. So there's different recommendations that should happen on an OC as well. But you try to put that into position stands or you try to put oh. that into dietetic guidelines. <laughs> it's like hitting your head, right? Right. Will that be fairly consistent? Like, could you group, and I hate to ask this, but <clears throat> could you group female athletes who are taking oral contraceptives and give them at least a blanket nutrition recommendation? Or are we still at that phase where we really have to kind of tease it out end of one? Um, so for OC, you can mm -hmm. give some pretty good blanket recommendations okay. because the composition of the estrogen is always the same. Okay. The generation of the progestin is different. Hmm. And the really big thing you need to know about that is the earlier generations are more androgenic. So hmm. when it builds up about two and a half weeks in of the active pill, women have a greater predisposition for de developing explosive power and strength. So if you're trying to maximize that kind of training, then, you know, a little bit more carbohydrate and definitely following up with a little bit more protein. But if they're on the later generation of progestins that are not um, so androgenic, then it won't work. You just have yeah. to be like, okay, we just need a steady state. We want to take care of the inflammation, the oxidation. We know that um, your ability to handle stress diminishes for each week that you're on the active pill. So mm -hmm. what kinds of things can we do to promote recovery? Can I just hijack this one more time, Dina, just because yeah. this is... I, I've got such a hot topic. So I work with quite a few females. It keeps coming out because I am, I am obviously a male sport dietitian coach. And, and I do ask these questions, Stacey. Yes. Uh, well, and, and thanks to you really. Um, but, but I also have a lot of females on the IUD, right? Mm -hmm. So that's their birth control method. So are there significant differences that are, that our listeners need to know if they are on the IUD versus the uh, oral contraceptives? First, I want to say, yes, I'm glad that they're on the IUD. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Because with the IUD, even if it is the Marina or the Skylar, you know, a small dose of progestin, mm-hmm. women will ovulate after about six to eight months after conception. Oh. And then when they ovulate, you can track your natural cycle. Mm-hmm. If they're on a copper IUD, then they're still having their natural cycle, so you can track. Mm-hmm. And we can track with basal body temperature. We can track basal body temperature and use an over-the-counter ovulation predictor kit, so you can dial in the phases. Because some women don't bleed when they're on the IUD, and that's just because the endometrial lining is so thin that there isn't any blood loss. Like when it sheds, it just gets the cells just get uptaken and recycled. Um, but for women who've had heavy menstrual bleeding and then they go an IUD, they might have a small bleed afterwards. But it's again, you can still track the cycle, so you can look more at how would we look to periodize nutrition from a natural cycle. And again, it's really after ovulation that we have the biggest concern mm-hmm. where we want to supply more carbohydrate in the general diet. Because if we have a higher carbohydrate diet or percentage of carbohydrates coming from our food sources in that time period, the luteal phase, then we're able to increase glycogen stores as if we are in the follicular phase. We also mm-hmm. have more circulating blood glucose from the carbohydrate intake so we can still hit intensities because our body's relying more on blood glucose and then upping protein because you have progesterone that's catabolic mm-hmm. what about athletes who are amenorrheic sorry dina one more time <laughs> <laughs> no amenorrhea that's no. a big issue um and that falls into like the low energy availability state, mm. the red S state. It's a clinical issue. And you guys are probably like me work with quite a few athletes who can't stop, right? They have a professional mm-hmm. contract. They still have to keep performing or you have recreational athletes who are like, don't tell me I'm stopping. Like I'd use it for my social and mental stress release. Right. Mm. So then we look at the Delta. We really want to mm. drop volume increase or keep some intensity and fuel for every session because we're changing that delta trying to get that energy availability up as best as we can when there still is some little bit of of resistance to change of stopping or can't um but the thing about amenorrhea is you want to nail that in the bud like nip it in the bud as fast as possible get that luteinizing hormone starts going so that the hypothalamus is working with dyspeptin, you're getting the signals for estrogen, you're getting the signals for ovulation. Because then we say, yeah, you're ovulating, you have a period, then we know that your body is resilient enough to stress from a natural health standpoint, then to add on the training and adapt to training. Perfect. Thank you. Mm. Uh, Stacey, when you were talking about insulin sensitivity, and I'm kind of bringing it to the perimenopause years uh, with that flux in cycles or in ovulatory cycles and some of those changes that are occurring, I wondered with the, you know, hoopla around a lot of the wearables these days, where are you like using CGM to figure out our own blood glucose response? I know it can be there's a lot of flux there, but yeah, insight on that or perspectives, even if it's um, short-term I, use to, to learn. Yeah. For short-term use, it's good. I think that the technology of the CGM has over-promised and under-delivered at the moment. There's not enough research in there yet. Mm-hmm. 
We do know that women who are in a low energy state, they can become very hypoglycemic while they sleep. So this ends up being why they have a lot of sleep perturbance and disruption. Mm. Um, when we're looking at the perimenopausal state, it can be useful to track using the two-week CGM um, just so you can start to see what is the patterning. So we'll see the differences and, and know when, um, like right before hot flush, we'll see some perturbance in blood sugar. Um, sleeping again as well. Is it the disruption from hormonal shifts or is it disruption from low energy availability? So it's useful to track. Uh, if we're trying to put in guidelines specifically around blood sugar and CGM, there's not enough data to support it yet. But would you find value? Just see, I'm thinking of the food composition and maybe even the training, you know, demands and things that when we're trying to fuel our workouts, but then in, especially if we're paying attention to body comp, or I know we're not trying to diet around our workouts. So we're trying to fuel our workouts with adequate carbohydrate, but then learn our response and just seeing um, peaks and valleys blood sugar wise and working with insulin sensitivity or changes in glucose tolerance. Um, would you see value in that regard? Just learning our own individual response to certain kinds of foods and carbohydrates? Yes, but first I would work on changing up the training, the mentality around training, mm -hmm. like getting people out of the long, slow distance that we know mm -hmm. increases cortisol and mm -hmm. causes blood sugar flicks. So when we start looking at that polarized training, the high intensity stuff and really, really super low, low, low recovery, we get that nailed we implement more resistance training, even in the endurance space. Then if we're still having issues around it, that's when we start looking more internally, looking at blood glucose flux and responses to food. Because there's the big rocks that we really know work. And then individuals who are still having those sticky points, that's when we can start dialing in with some of the wearable technology and say, hey, look, let's track and see, how are you responding to these kinds of carbohydrates? What's happening while you're sleeping? Kind of I would stuff. love for you to talk a little bit more about this polarized training because I feel like so many women push back, right? Us mm -hmm. endurance oh. junkies, like, no mm -hmm. way, you can't take that and doing the hard work. And like, it's easy, embarrassingly slow, or it's really mm -hmm. hard and shifting that ratio from the long, slow distance stuff. Um, could you talk about that? Uh, importance? Oh, yes, I can forever in a day. <laughs> it needs to be heard. Again and again. And again and again. I think most people who know me know I come from a very long endurance background. Started as a cross-country runner, got into Ironman, got into bike racing, Xterra. Um, so I'm not one to discount the, the love of endurance, right? But when we start looking at what's happening in the perimenopausal state, and we're seeing these fluctuations of these hormones, we know that there's an increase in that baseline of cortisol and how cortisol negatively affects health and sleep and everything, right? So we want to bring that down. If we do a lot of long, slow distance stuff or that moderate intensity, it's sitting right there in the zone that increases cortisol. If we have an increase in cortisol from the training, we don't have the subsequent growth hormone release post-exercise or that anti-inflammatory response post-exercise because it's not hard enough to instigate any kind of residual change that we're after. So when I'm talking to a lot of women in this age group, 
and I'm fully in there. Growing up in the 80s and seeing the Jane Fonda workouts and getting the whole calories in, calories out, that mentality is still there. Mm -hmm. And we see body composition changing and putting on body fat and they're like, I need to train more. I need more hours. I need to do endurance stuff because I need to build my base or whatever. And it's the wrong thing because it puts them in that moderate intensity, cortisol up, no growth hormone responses, no anti-inflammatory responses, no stress rebuilding lean mass, but an incredible amount of signaling to put on body fat. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about polarized training, we're talking about full gas at the top for those hit intervals or sprint intervals. And then the recovery is at super, super low. So if you're an endurance junkie and you want to go out for three or four hours on your bike, you do, but you're small gear spinning, really, really super low, low intensity, where you're thinking more coffee ride, not group ride. And that's what your endurance is about. But the polarization effect is when you do that super high intensity, you get so many really interesting epigenetic changes for a benefit. When you're doing that high intensity work, one, you don't get that boost in cortisol because it's too intense for that a large amount of cortisol to come up. You do get a significant amount of growth hormone response, which helps with reparation. You have the uh, anti-inflammatory response. But with that high intensity work, you are creating new pathways for muscle protein synthesis and for blood glucose control. Because estrogen affects IGF-1 and also some E2 receptors within the muscle. When estrogen's gone or perturbing, you've lost two pathways for muscle protein synthesis. So now you have to look at mechanical stress of physical activity and following it up with amino acids. So if that mechanical stress of physical activity is kind of moderate intensity, it's not really strong enough to promote lean mass development, but it's still sitting there in that, okay, we're gonna cause some more body fat, visceral fat gain. Mm-hmm. And then when Stacey, we talk we, about, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just jumping in. You, you finished first. I'm, I'm right. gonna ask you about postmenopausal, so keep that in mind. Okay. And then when we talk about resistance training, which ends up being the other no-no for the endurance set. Well, when we think about resistance training, body weight doesn't do it either. It's a good place to start. So I'm notorious. I think I presented at the endurance summit of training things, lift heavy, right? And that was like the coin op phrase that now is going everywhere because that's the idea. You're not doing eight to 12 reps. You're not doing the, um, the 45 minute boot camp. That's not resistance training. We need to go in and create a very strong mechanical stress that instigates myosin chain reactions that estrogen used to. So you have more muscle integrity for contraction. We need to have that mechanical stress for lean mass and protein synthesis. We need neuromuscular stimulus so that we can maintain power and speed and explosiveness, especially for racing. So that heavy endurance work plus that that high intensity work is the gold for women who are in this phase. And as they go through the transition, they get into postmenopause. It's the same thing. Exactly what I was going to ask. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, I answered anyway. Perfect. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, all the listeners, pause right now, rewind about three minutes, and listen to that piece again and again until it oh, yeah. gets sunken into the noggin. Because it's so, it's there's so much resistance to 
to this paradigm shift. Um, I totally. think, and then even with the nutrition changes that come along, like this need to put in a focus on protein and, you know, um, looking at how we fuel our workouts. There's just a lot there that I think, um, if we can embrace that and really understand the benefits that you're trying to explain here very well, um, it can do so much for us for not just this short term that, you know, these few years, but beyond for, um, right. that long haul. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you talk to Celine, who's my co-author, and she'll tell you the whole story. Like she couldn't feasibly sit down and write our new book because she's going through all these changes. She's like, I can't write a book about being an athlete. I'm not one anymore. And then she implemented these changes and she's like winning, um, what is Iron Cross and some of the other races are just like, I never thought I would be here before because it's that polarization focus on being strong and getting that explosive power. Um, I ride my bike maybe twice a week now if I'm lucky, but now that I have the focus on resistance training and high intensity, I go for a ride, it'll be a hard ride and I'm still winning Strava segments up the hill. I'm like, yes, that's my racing anyway, right? Um, <laughs> So when it comes down to like ultra running and endurance racing, you have to be strong and you have to have that stress resilience. And unfortunately, when women go long and slow, their bodies are already predisposed to going long and slow because of those Mm -hmm. sex differences within muscle mitochondria. And the longer and slower you go, the more you get slower and slower. So there's, I'm not really surprised that there's this huge upsurge in ultra running with the female participation, especially mm-hmm. the 40 plus set of women, yep. mm-hmm. they tend to gravitate there because that's how their physiology is kind of pushing them. But if we want to stay out of that ultra stuff or be even more successful in the ultra stuff, we have to look at doing high intensity and resistance training. Yeah. Stacy, do you think, and this is kind of a curveball, but do you think even that message can be strewn towards premenopausal females, like getting them ready for that stage, or is it even not that important at that that focus or that time in their life? Resistance training is always important, high intensity too. It's not as important to be as severely polar, polarized in your training mm-hmm. as it is when you get into that perimenopausal state. Mm-hmm. But women will start seeing shifts in their late 30s, early 40s. And when you start seeing those shifts, that's when you should really start changing up your training and focusing more on how many minutes of intensity versus how many minutes I'm out there. Gotcha. Perfect. And this ties to bone health, which is really important for all of us. Can you talk a few tidbits around bone health and benefits? Yeah. So women lose one third of their bone mass after the onset of menopause. And so we need to be able to to prevent that in some regards, because we know the estrogen and progesterone are very tied to bone turnover. So when we start to have the flat lining of those hormones and changing in ratios, our bones suffer. So one of the other things that we talk about in that perimenopausal state is doing plyometric work or jump training, because we need that multi-directional stress to create undue stress in the bone where your body's like, wait a second, I need to remodel in case I have that stress again. So it's not undue stress to cause fracture, but it's unusual stress, not like running, not like um, you know doing, well, I guess CrossFit with box jumps and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, oh, I do yoga. Isn't that, you know, that's, that's ground resistance training, or I'm doing um, body weight resistance work, or I'm running, that should be enough, but it's not. 
we need that multi-directional stress in order to create the torque to instigate that bone turnover. And if we start putting that explosive training in before we get to that one point in time menopause and postmenopause, we're building bone, we're getting that stress, we have the ability to do that explosive work when we get to that phase. So we keep getting the stimulus for bone turnover and bone strength. Perfect. I know one, uh, an athlete that I know who's a triathlete, long, you know, long time triathlete, she recently added in tennis as a starting point for her to get that multi-directional awesome. stress. And, yeah. and she realized, Ooh, this is also fun. So it was like a new, a new hobby for her. And then realizing that it would serve some benefit to her, you know, bone health and that stress on the skeleton. So I thought that was fun. And cross training. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Training for triathlon. Yeah. Thinking out of the for box sure. a little bit. Yeah. Um, Stacy, I know a biggie too is um, sleep quality, and I know huge. that. Yeah, it's huge. Um, do you? I, I know you've said before, and uh, even in the Roar book, some things about sleep and paying attention to what we eat for dinner, having some gap between our last meal of the day and when we go to sleep and our sleep hygiene. Um, Can you talk to any, uh, even if it's the tart cherry, if that's still something that you recommend or some other um, tips there to help with sleep quality or even some things for those who are experiencing that 3 a.m. wake up and maybe that ties to the low blood sugar you were mentioning earlier low energy state yeah there's yeah there's quite a few layers with the sleep like most women will have sleep disturbances when their hormones are fluctuating because estrogen again with melatonin they're tied and so you start to have these sleep disruptions from a neurotransmitter you also have an increasing baseline core temperature we know that when you sleep you need to drop your core temperature first in order to get into good sleep architecture. And then a natural waking cycle is your core temperature comes up. So if we look at, well, what can I do to kind of help in those two situations? We're drinking something cold before bed to drop our core temperature or putting our feet or hands in cold water to dump heat to bring our temperature down. Tart cherry, yep, it's great because it has melatonin. But if you're having really severe sleep issues with things like hot flashes, night sweats, um, waking up with insomnia, this is a little bit more than just a little bit of fluctuation. This is a changeover of the hormones responses to um, vascular control and the hypothalamus receiving temperature signals. So this is where we look at using adaptogens and I've talked about them before and I'll just rehash it a bit. So adaptogens have been around for ages and I think they're now called nootropics in the modern buzzword. Mm-hmm. But they, yeah, they're plant compounds that actually work and are are received in the body as a natural substance. So it works with your body. It's not like a drug that downregulates something or you're adding to a system. If you take something like ashwagandha, which is one of the most popular relaxing type um, adaptogens, it works with the hypothalamus pituitary axis where cortisol will usually signal it. And what the adaptogen comes in and the active compound within the ashwagandha attaches to the receptor sites that cortisol usually would. So your body doesn't have to produce as much or actually gets the signaling not to produce as much. 
And then because it's attached to the receptor site, you're not still getting the same messaging because it's not quite the same molecular structure as cortisol. So it actually downregulates stress. So it increases parasympathetic drive. So if we're looking at poor sleep and not being able to get into that parasympathetic drive that we need to in order to sleep well, we want to look at something like adaptogens. So ashwagandha and rhodiola are two of the best ones for sleeping because rhodiola reduces that dead-end fatigue that's more of that sympathetic activation and instigates more parasympathetic. Ashwagandha works with the HPA to reduce some of the signaling of the stress hormones and your body gets again into that more relaxed ability to get into that deep parasympathetic sleep. It might take five days for it to all activate, but you'll see that your sleep is, is starting to get better and it will get better. You hear Are that quiet music? Yeah. <laughs> what is, is that? It's the delivery guy outside. Oh, nice. Is there clin are there clinically effective doses for for uh, ashwagandha for and rhodiola? Yeah. yeah, are those published yet? Okay. Yeah, I can send you some papers if you want. Really fascinating. That'd be fantastic, but, yeah. And we'll put those the, in the show notes. Yeah, least least effective dose, which is a strange term for Western medicine, but least effective yeah. dose, three hundred milligrams of ashwagandha, okay. and two hundred milligrams of rhodiola. So it's not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And do you recommend that right before sleep or is that can a female take that anytime throughout the day just to kind of get it in their system? Um, whatever works. I try to have okay. it in the afternoon. So mm -hmm. like you start getting more parasympathetic drive, but if you wake up and you're super stressed and you're like, I have a very stressful day, mm -hmm. take it in the morning because then it also help you through the day. Okay. That's what I do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> What about creatine? Do you guys use creatine? Oh, I wanted to share. I just started my own creatine experiment based on info that I'd heard from you, Yay. which that's so important to share. And I know, I mean, people need to pick their low hanging fruit, what they want to, you know, mm. clean up or change in their nutrition and their training. But this is something that's super exciting that you've been sharing recently more. Yeah. Could you touch on that? Yeah. So um, I've, been taking it for about six months now um, for post-concussive syndrome that's been lingering for a year or so. Um, and I think I first got turned on to it through Abby Smith Ryan's work. She's at um, UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And my PhD student who's doing sex differences and concussions. And you start looking into creatine. And creatine is important for every high energetic activities in the body, especially brain health, gut health. Mm -hmm. And we typically think about creatine as creatine loading and the bodybuilding set and, and you know, 20 grams a day and getting all bloated, but that's not the kind of dosing we're talking about. We look at low dose, three to five grams a day. And for women, we have a 70% storage that men have. So we're already on the low end of things. But creatine is so important for preventing the erosion of the mucosal lining of the gut so people have gut issues right so it helps with that it helps with brain energetics and brain health because you have more of that fast fuel that the brain needs so post-concussive syndrome super important for brain health helps with bdnf so your brain neurotrophic factor mm -hmm. um and then from a performance aspect, that small little dose of three to five grams a day significantly improves muscle integrity, especially for women. 
So we're talking about a small little supplement. It's amazing. And when we look even into more of the clinical data, it really attenuates depressive syndrome, depressive symptoms, sorry. There's been some really interesting studies where they've looked at small dose of creatine versus SSRIs. And women who are using creatine have come out of their depressive syndromes and symptoms faster than women who have been on SSRIs. So if you're someone who has significant mood fluctuation or all of a sudden you're like, I can't cope, what's going on? It must be perimenopause. Creatine is a godsend. It's, um, it's, it's, there's so much efficacious research out there that's been more geared to the performance. But when you start mm-hmm. looking at the clinical applications and how it can help both men and women too. So Bob, get on right. your three to five grams. Oh, I've been on creatine for years, Stacey. Yeah, awesome. for years, Perfect. yeah, for, for different reasons, obviously, but yeah. uh, definitely definitely the brain health and gut health as of late. Yeah, yeah. And, and for our listeners to understand, and, and you said, you mentioned it, but creatine is, is really one of the most well-researched supplements I think that is out there. I mean, for the past, what, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah, it's creatine and caffeine. Those are the two mm-hmm. most researched ones. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow, Stacy, I I know time is flying. Geez, and there's still there's still more. So it will all be <laughs> uh, if you haven't already signed up for Stacy and Celine's new book to pre-order that. Get on it. What's the title, Stacy? Next level, your guide for kicking ass and surviving menopause, or something to yes. something catchy that Celine came up with. But yeah. awesome, so it. awesome. We're super excited. Um, was there anything? I know there is a lot more, Stacy, but uh, Bob or Stacy, anything else you wanted to add before we try and wrap up? I know it was scratching the surface in this whole realm, but. Uh, I just have one quick, and it's Perfect. not going to be quick, but Stacey, if you can kind of package this, and mm-hmm. it's more out of frustration. I know Dina shares the same thing. There are so many female athletes I work with these days who want to jump into a ketogenic diet. Oh. And I'll just, I'll just set you up for it. Go. Swing. Go. Swing. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we'll start with older research that looks at the ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. And we know that it started in a clinical population, obese men who needed to lose weight for cardiovascular disease or diabetic control or surgery. And it works well. When something like that happens in the clinical population, the fitness media takes it and pulls it into the fitness population without really asking, is it viable? And then you have influencers who take it up and say, I'm amazing, I've tried this, right? But when you look at the research, it's very harmful to women. Because again, there's sex differences in metabolism. And when we look at what's happening with the ketogenic diet, there's not enough carbohydrate in there to allow for appetite control um, or to allow for luteinizing hormone and ovulation because the brain needs carbohydrates when you don't have enough circulating carbohydrate and you have too many um, ketone esters circulating, then it downregulates kisspeptin in the brain. So men have one area of kisspeptin neurons, but women have two. Women have two because we ovulate and have a menstrual cycle. Men have one that's more appetite control driven. Hmm. We know estrogen as well is driven and suppresses appetite, progesterone increases appetite. So there's a tight control in these hormones as well with appetite. So when you're on the ketogenic diet and you end up perturbing kisspeptin, it causes endocrine disruption where you might 
have a bleed, but it's anovulatory. You might skip periods and start to have irregular periods. So we know there's something wrong. But aside from endocrine system, when we look at some of the benefits they say with the ketogenic diet of inc uh, increasing fatty acid metabolism becoming um, more of a fat burner, women are already there. We don't have to do a ketogenic diet to get there because of sex differences within the muscle mitochondria. We are already there. We also have estrogen that helps spare carbohydrate, increase fatty acid metabolism. So we go through these fluctuations and this flexibility from uh, across the month. And then we look at the health benefits. There aren't any long-term health benefits on the ketogenic diet, especially for women. There's a paper that came out, well, circulating yesterday from Trent Stellenworth talking about this review on the intermittent fasting, the ketogenic diet as aging diets. And there's no efficacy for aging on these either. From a performance perspective, the performance data on the ketogenic diet has been done on men, not on women. We know that women need more circulating carbohydrate because we rely more on blood sugar and less on stored carbohydrate for performance. And when you're talking about body composition change, it's not there for body composition change because we need carbohydrate in order to get a lot of the muscle protein um, stimulus that we are looking for because we need that to produce the hormones that then stimulate the muscle protein synthesis. Perfect. So it sounds like, I mean, throughout not necessarily specific to peri or postmenopausal, but overall, like the whole overall. kind of conclusion absolutely is that maybe not as beneficial for females. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, the push has been for males as, as we've been reading or, you know, maybe listening in our circles is a lot of males are saying keto is the best thing since you know what. And no, we do have to realize the gender differences and exactly like you summed it up. I think that was very powerful. Thanks. Yeah. And the other thing to remember when you're looking at these trendy diets is the threshold for change is different between the sexes. So if we look at it from an energy availability standpoint, the threshold for negative change for women sits around that 30 calories per kilogram, but for men it's 15. So there's a, a huge window, right? So we start seeing ketogenic intermittent fasting. Men's bodies can deal with a lot more of that kind of residual stress without having significant negative impact. But for women, we hit that even 35 subclinical LEA, we start mm -hmm. seeing perturbations. We start seeing menstrual cycle irregularities. We start seeing a lowered thyroid function. And when you start adding these trendy diets in, I'm like, wait a second, you're just adding to the stress for this perturbance of your general endocrine system. Yeah. You know, Stacey, does that threshold apply to uh perimenopause, postmenopause age group? We don't know about, yeah, we don't know about postmenopause, yeah. but for perimenopause, yes. Yeah. And it's more okay. important, again, like you've said, not dieting around training, mm. but really fueling. Because yeah. when we're looking at the amount of stress the body is under with these hormone perturbations, you need to fuel for it. People freak out because of body composition change, but then it all circles back to what kind of training are you doing and are you fueling for that training? Yeah. Okay. Oh, Stacey, uh, gosh, thanks for <laughs> everything you've been filling us in. I wondered before we get to our wrap up piece of this podcast, if, if you want to summarize, like if you had to pick for someone, uh, an athlete in the perimenopause or postmenopause years who's just now had their eyeballs, you know, enlarged to all of this, where would be a good place for them to start 
with the nutrition and training other than getting your book, your new book that's coming out. But if you had to give like a top three tips, things that you can start doing right away to help yourself as an athlete, what comes yeah. to mind? Um, I always start with lift heavy stuff carefully, right? Phase yeah. it in. You need to get that resistance training in. Uh, fuel for what you were doing, right? And then fixing sleep. Those are the three big things, right? Um, and then when you get those, then you start looking at how am I polarizing my training for being an endurance athlete or how what what kinds of changes am I going to do to that metabolic depletion type exercise? But the big rocks really are, you know, resistance training, fuel for what you're doing, and getting sleep under control. Perfect. The three golden rules yeah. to live by, and then we can fill in from there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be more individualistic awesome. from there. Yeah. There we go. Oh, wow. Thank you, Stacey. Um, we wanted to, before we let you go, if you have like three, four more minutes, is yeah. do a round of what we're calling a high five, which is just giving you five questions for you to just spill out whatever comes into your brain. And um, just giving us a little bit more insight into Stacy Sims. Bob, do you want to do the first one? Yeah. So Stacy, first question for you, what's your favorite post-workout food and or drink? And I know it probably depends on the workout. I'm holding it right here. Ooh, what is it's it? It's empty now. Oh, your coffee? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my protein coffee. Oh. I'll make a cold brew before I leave somewhere and put in a 20 to 30 gram head of protein. So I'll okay. drink it as I'm stretching or putting bike stuff away or it's in the car coming back from the gym. And then I'll have real food to top up the rest of the protein. But yeah, I love it. What type of protein, Stacey? Depends. It depends. Yeah. Um, Either pea protein isolate or mm -hmm. a whey isolate, but never okay. flavored. Okay. When I'm okay. traveling, when I'm traveling, it's more whey because it's harder to find high quality pea protein. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So in the realm of lifting heavy, what's your favorite exercise or strength training exercise to do? I just PR'd in the back squat, so I'm going to have to say that. Right. I saw that. Congratulations. That was Congrats. a huge PR. Yeah. I know. I started working with a friend and she does all the strength and conditioning stuff for the high performance center. And we've been on a couple of girls weekends. I'm like, I really need to get balanced after my hip surgery. So she's like, mm. I got you covered. Mm. So she had nice. me doing heavy sitting to a box, disengaged, then engaged to work on the push up. Mm. And that push up from below parallel is what got me into getting a PR. That's great. Phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Number three, and if you can limit it to one, what's the worst fueling experience you ever had during a race? Oh, I have one that always sticks out. Yeah. We are racing a very, very hot circuit in central California and it starting line was like a hundred degrees. And oh. by the time we got to the third circuit, it was up in the one twenties oh. and I was dying of thirst and I had run out of bottles and I was looking for the feed zone and someone's like here you go stays here 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 and I grabbed it and I drank it and it was one of those like Powerade Gatorade like really thick carbohydrate drinks yeah and I immediately started spewing and oh. then 
the last like lead in the sprinklers were on but it's not like water it's like the silage stuff that's going over the field you know it's oh. so dehydrated oh. finish the race sit down and then i just start spewing uncontrollably oh, and, the heat and that drink oh horrible Shoot. horrible yeah it was oh. not the bottle i had prepared yeah put that forward yeah uh, oh yeah. gosh bad memories very um do you have a sport that you can easily binge watch uh, no not really i don't really like watching sport on tv yeah. i want yeah. to be participating in it yeah, right right yeah <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Is yeah. is lifting your like what gives you your most mojo right now? No. Uh I do it because we live in a very flat place except for one really, really big hill. And I don't want to relinquish some of the segments I have on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> and riding. Um, but also just the feeling of being strong and being able to be like, I'm going to go swim 4K in the ocean today. I can do mm -hmm. that. I'm going to go on a 100K gravel ride. And I can do that. And it's that baseline yeah. of strength that allows me to do that because training specifically for 100K takes too much time. Right. Training specifically right. for 4K ocean swim takes too much time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes That's sense. a great message right there. Hopefully the listeners really gleaned that message from that. Uh, Stacy, yeah. last one here. If you had one, just one piece of advice to give athletes, female athletes, the ones we've really been focusing on, peri and postmenopausal, what would that one piece of advice be? Only one. It is something that every woman goes through, regardless of culture or anything like that. We all go through it. So talk about it because you want to have your support network. And if you're going through something, then you know that someone else has gone through it. So don't feel like you're alone. Like open up the conversation, talk about it. Perfect. Here, here. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Stacey. This you're has welcome. been such a pleasure and joy. We are so grateful for your time, sharing your wisdom with us. And gosh, yeah, we can't thank you enough. We'll be sure to let everyone know um, with links to the book to pre-order and make sure that's in the uh, bookshelf or on the iPad or whatever. Cool. As soon as it's Thanks. released and, uh, gosh, so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah Stacey, thanks for this was me. amazing. Thank you so much for, for allowing us to, to chat with you a little bit. It's, it's going to help, uh, all, all athletes, all female athletes, obviously, but there's just so much more to, to discuss. And we definitely appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, like I said. And it's been fun to catch up. Absolutely. Yay. We can't wait to see you uh, next year here in Colorado. Yeah, Hopefully. let's count down the, Hopefully. let's say months <laughs> instead of year. Months exactly. instead of year. Exactly. <laughs> cool. All right. See ya. Hey, welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast. We hope you enjoyed episode 13 when Dina and I sat down with Dr. Stacey Sims and chatted all things female athlete nutrition. Such an engaging topic, and we absolutely loved spending time with Dr. Sims. Hope to have her on a future episode this year, maybe one or two more to uh, try to round out that topic. Stay tuned for next week's episode when Dina and I sit down and chat about nutrient timing. This one specifically, we are doing a 
deep dive into the pre-training before training nutrient timing strategies. You will not want to miss it. It's for every athlete, endurance, power-based, strength-based, aesthetic-based, you name it. So be sure to tune in. If you do have a sport nutrition question you'd like us to address on a future episode, just send us an email. You can email us at hello at insidesportsnutrition.com. Be sure to include your full name and obviously your question. We would love it if you could support and promote our podcast. If you find our information beneficial and you're digging our real life strategies and they're useful in your quest for improving your health and performance, go over, please visit your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating and a great review. It really helps us grow and share our content with other listeners around the world. For more information about my or Dina's individual and team nutrition coaching and physiological and biomarker testing services, you can reach out to me by visiting energyperformance.com. That is E-N-R-G performance.com. And you can catch Dina at nutritionmechanic.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest involved and do not represent a replacement for medical consultation with your doctor. The information and opinions provided here are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, prevent any disease or medical condition. This podcast is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only.